And as we continue with worship upstairs, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 17 through 20. And uh, this is um, the second to the last week of our fall sermon series. Um, and so, uh, and this is just a little bit of a, a switch up of, I was going to preach part one of this question, and then Audrey is going to preach part two. Um, instead, as everything unfolded, um, we're going to, we did part two already, and now we're going to do part one. So it's kind of like the Star Wars trilogy, where four, five, and six came out first, before one, two, and three. Um, we invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And hear these words of Jesus in a moment after we pray for God's blessing upon the Word. And as you hear them, I invite you to wonder and remember what you already know about this passage, what you already know about what Jesus is saying, and what you already know about what Jesus means when he says what he does. Because you might hear something that you can understand how it could be misinterpreted about our own righteousness and miss what you already know, which we hopefully can accept, is that Jesus is the perfect picture of righteousness. So hold up today as you hear these words. Pray for the Holy Spirit um, to, to come into your mind. What do you already know about this? And how did you learn it? But before we pray, uh, before we read God's word, let's pray together um, for God's Holy Spirit to be present in the reading. Will you pray with me? God, you are the creator of all things. You created us. You created our bodies and our minds. You created the trees that the paper of our Bibles is printed on and you gave us all of the other substances that we can uh, read, our, read from our screens, your word. But Lord, it is you that we seek today in your word. So send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray. Illumine the reading of your word that, that we may encounter you, the living God, through the words, through the stories that we so preciously have in our Bibles. Send your Holy Spirit into our hearts that your word may be living and active within us and among us. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and that of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? If we didn't know better on how to interpret what Jesus is saying, we would think we could easily understand and misinterpret that Jesus is saying this is a competition of your own works righteousness, that you have to be more righteous than those people to get into the kingdom of heaven. But we know from a fuller picture of reading scripture that that's not what Jesus means. When we hear these words, we can interpret and understand that what Jesus is saying, that this is not a competition of righteousness among Pharisees versus normal people, but that this is, in fact, Jesus laying the groundwork for understanding that Christ alone is the one who is righteous enough that it is not our own works of righteousness that get us into the kingdom of heaven, but it is by leaning upon and trusting in the one who is righteous alone. That Jesus says things like like that no stroke of the law, and last week Pastor Audrey reminded us that the, the Pharisees basically believed that it was the law and the prophets and the writings. The Sadducees, they just liked the law. Jesus is holding to the law and the prophets, but then saying, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. But who's the one who's doing the accomplishing? Jesus. Jesus fulfilling the law, not coming to abolish it, but to fulfill it fulfilling all righteousness by his death, by his resurrection, and his rising again. So when we read these words of Jesus, we can rightly interpret this isn't a competition of works righteousness. This is a reminder that Christ alone is our righteousness. As we think about how we read and interpret Scripture, though, I wonder if we can understand by analogy that there's two different types of knowledge out there. And so on the first, first slide here, uh, I just invite you to remember, think of what you can learn from a live person, from a living being that is talking to you, um, that can be in your presence. There's a certain type of knowledge that you can learn from someone that you know. And I want to set up the contrast of that um, Alongside that, on this slide, you see a live person versus a cadaver, a dead body. There are different things that you learn from a cadaver than what you learn from a live person. Now, just to put it all up on the screen, um, a live person can tell you stories. You can know secondhand the stories about someone who died, but a living, breathing person can tell you their story. They can share their testimony with you. A a cadaver, you can study. You can maybe learn about their story, but they can't tell you. A living person, you can have a conversation with. A cadaver, you can have analysis of. A living person can hold your hand. A cadaver is dissectable, and unless it's Halloween or something weird is happening, cannot hold your hand. I want to hold up that both types of knowledge are important 
in different ways. There are things that I, I would say I would prefer every day of the week to do my learning and living with live people, with people who are living and breathing that I can talk to and have conversations with. But we all, every single one of us in this room, knows someone or is a person who has benefited from the type of knowledge that we've actually gained from cadavers. The surgeries that we've had, um, the practice that doctors and surgeons and physical therapists have, the techniques have been developed through study of cadavers. We learn things by studying dead bodies that actually benefit those who are still living. And I think of still praying for Nick Stott, for everything going on there, for Kara Kuman, for the road ahead, for everyone. Our understanding of the body has been built off of understanding the dissectable analysis of a cadaver. We need this knowledge. It's important. It is not the type of knowledge that I would want to study or directly interact with. But a living person is defined by an encounter. Whether it's a friend, a family member, a coworker, an employee, a boss, the people that you know, your relationship with them is defined by the encounter with a living person. This is where social media maybe obscures what encounter looks like. But after, after service, downstairs, with a cup of coffee, maybe catching Ben to hear about campus ministry, we can have interactions with living people that are defined by an encounter. What we know from a cadaver is defined by empiricism. And what empiricism is, is 18th century, 17th century, um, post-enlightenment movement uh, by John Locke, George Berkeley, and others. It was not meant to be an attack on faith, but empiricism was meant to be, what can we know without any kind of intuition? What can we know even without faith? Consider what are the things that you can observe, that you can mathematically quantify and understand. Now, we need that kind of knowledge. We also need to admit that we make a lot of decisions based on things like intuition. Have you ever said, I've got a bad feeling about this? And ever made a decision based on just something in your gut? Empiricism is what do we know if we didn't have any of that intuition or knowledge? Now, we can do this with people, living people that we can interact with, and we trust that uh, doctors and other professionals can learn a lot of things from cadavers that benefit us. But to clear that all off, I want you to wonder for a minute, can we approach this the same way with the Bible? What's the origin of the Bible? Well, if we go to the next slide, we can think there is cadaver-type knowledge that we can have of Scripture without any kind of intuition or anything else. You can know, even without faith, that there are 66 books in the Bible. You can know that it takes you about 72 hours of reading time out loud to get through the whole Bible. That does not take faith or intuition. That is empirical knowledge of the book. We know that there's the Old and the New Testament, the story of the people of Israel, and then the story of Christ and the church. We can know that there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. 
We can know things about um, the authors who wrote things. We can know things about the dates. And we can learn a lot about the time that all of these things were written and how that informs a beneficial reading to understand what someone who wrote in the first century meant. That is all important knowledge. And it is cadaver knowledge. It requires no intuition. It does not require faith. It is simple fact, cut and dry. But that's not the point that we're after here. That's not the end game by which we read Scripture. So going on to the next slide, think of when we read the Bible, the purpose of the Bible and the relevance thereof is not all of the cadaver knowledge. Though I find that valuable, that's not the purpose or the relevance of Scripture. The purpose and relevance of the Bible is to have an encounter with a living person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. To know things about the Bible, but to know that there is a God who loves you, who sends someone at a bus stop to say, did you know that Jesus loves you and can I pray for you? That is the living Jesus at work. And when we read scripture, we are seeking to have an encounter with the living person of Jesus Christ. And we can add in the next things. Stories of the Bible, ways in which God was at work, ways in which God was watching over his people, protecting them, guiding them. That when we read scripture, the story of scripture becomes our story that we can read about the exodus and also know that, that we needed an exodus as well from the old ways where we were a slave to sin to the new ways of following Jesus. We can read the conversations of God's wisdom at work, like when the prophet Nathan confronted King David about his adultery and his murder of Uriah the Hittite. We can read those conversations and encounter the wisdom of the living God. This is beyond cadaver knowledge. This is when the Holy Spirit is at work through every stroke of the pen that recorded how God was at work then so that we also can trust and believe that God is at work now in our lives and in the reading of the word. That our reading of scripture should be defined by an encounter with the living God. And all of the cadaver knowledge, all of the college and seminary classes, all helpful stuff. Some of you know my, one of my hobbies is reading mythology, and I have all kinds of empirical lenses through which I read that because I find it interesting. And you can do all of those same lenses when you read the Bible. We don't have to shut our brains off when we read the Bible. But when I read the Iliad, it's interesting and I can know things about that time and place, but there's not an encounter with a living person that I'm seeking when I read the Iliad or the Odyssey. It can be inspiring, it can be great, but it's not the story that defines me. When we read scripture, we are trying to follow God and listen for God's Holy Spirit whispering to us and to our community that our reading can be an encounter with the living God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's a phrase that I just want to hold on to today and just have you try this on. And it's quite simply this. 
everyone interprets. Everyone interprets that when, when you read the passage that we read this morning, you are not trying to say, I can only get into heaven if I'm more righteous than a Pharisee. Does anyone know any Pharisees? I mean, pejoratively, we label people Pharisees, but not actually a living, breathing Pharisee. We understand because we can interpret well. Now, I want to qualify this, though. Everyone interprets some, some more faithfully than others. There are arguments for certain interpretations of Scripture that we can learn from, and some that we might say, thanks but no thanks, I think you're departing from orthodoxy. But we interpret when we read Scripture. And what that means at maybe just a basic level is that we, we do not have every word that we read as a literal command. There are literal truths. But not every single thing is how you are going to live your life every day. Now, some of this gets thrown onto the Old Testament. Throwing up on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 14. This is a passage of God's law, of how the people were to conduct themselves and live. And so hear these words from Deuteronomy 23, verses 12 through 14. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself, where you can go to the bathroom. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. That is an interesting passage. And if you're like, hey, stop all the potty talk, I would just say, I'm reading the Bible right now. But this is not how we live our lives literally. What you can know is that when indoor plumbing was becoming a thing, there were sermons written based on this passage that told us to not have indoor plumbing in church because it's not God's way. And John Van Isle and Larry Van Rie, you need interpretation because otherwise what you are doing is wrong. This is the origins of no-trace camping, but it is not how we live our daily lives. So there's some cadaver knowledge, but there's also an encounter with the living God even in this passage. Think about it. Thousands of people camped out. This is the origin of sanitation. How did everyone live and stay healthy in the desert? God instructed Moses to tell the people to make one spot where they did their business. It controls disease. It protects their health and well-being. It creates a sanitary society when that was really not a thing. So there's some cadaver knowledge that we have about how disease works. And then there's this amazing encounter with the living God that people were told by God to go to the bathroom outside of the camp and to bury it. So next time you're deer hunting, follow Deuteronomy 23. But in your daily life, remember that God was watching out for people even in ways they didn't yet understand. The rationale that Moses gave was that it was about holiness. But the benefit that God was at work to protect the people was that they were kept safe from disease.
Now, there's other examples in the Old Testament. We, are not, we do not take all of that literally because I have seen you all at potlucks eat things like bacon and shrimp. That is forbidden in the Old Testament. But we interpret that because we've read the next story. When Cornelius and Peter had their interaction and Peter had the vision of the sheet being lowered from heaven and God said, do not call anything unclean that I have called clean. Take, kill, and eat, said Peter. A good family friend of ours, he is an avid hunter like many of you. He said that is his life verse. Take, kill, and eat. We can appreciate the way that scripture unfolds, but some people, sometimes too often, the half-truth we settle for is we just say, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. That doesn't matter. So let's go to the New Testament with 1 Corinthians 11. I'll read this. You can follow along if you can. That's decent-sized print. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. I'm looking into the room and just noticing that when we were praying earlier, None of you women put on a hat or a veil. That would be the literal reading that Paul is instructing in 1 Corinthians 11. There is some cadaver knowledge about the culture in Corinth that would really help this make sense. But the encounter with the living God was that we come before God and that God cares about our heart. That, that in fact, Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs that were dressed really well, that they knew the cultural protocol but their hearts were not in the right place. But this is a New Testament passage that, I mean, it, we, we don't require women to cover their heads while they're praying. We also don't dictate how long or uh, short your hair needs to be. This is the origin of why people take their hats off while praying. But if you watch in a room, men and women both do that. We don't always know that that's the origin of it, but that is the origin of the behavior. And I still do it today, because on my day off, I like wearing a hat, usually a farm-related hat. It reminds me that I'm, I'm not at work today. Um, and so whenever I pray, though, instinctively, I still take off my hat. But so do my sisters. But they shouldn't. They should actually keep wearing their hats while praying. We interpret things with some context and culture. But that's the New Testament. What about just the things Jesus said? Going to Matthew chapter 5, which is part of the same chapter that we read, Jesus says this, and this is the passage that since college I have always held on to of why I argue that everyone interprets and why we need to. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We can interpret faithfully and understand exactly what Jesus means and that what Jesus says is true. 
it would be better to lose an eye or to lose a hand here on earth than to go to hell. Truth. We also interpret this in the follow-through, and I know that every single one of you here has interpreted this passage because I see a lot of right eyes and I shook a lot of right hands before service. We do interpret. Some interpretations are more faithful than others. That when we read a passage like Matthew 5, 29 and 30, we don't lose the gravity of what Jesus is saying, even knowing that Jesus is using the literary device known as hyperbole, a heightened exaggeration to prove a rhetorical point. It is hyperbole, although it is true. The interpretation comes in how we live it out. That we care so much about pursuing righteousness that that our bodies matter less to us than Jesus and his kingdom and his priorities for us. How we respond to such a passage is not literal. It is interpreted. Otherwise, You do need to gouge out your right eye and cut off your right hand. We interpret, and we seek to do so faithfully. And going back to the passage that we read this morning, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Meaning, don't think that all this stuff in the Bible is not going away. It's not going anywhere. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. Not abolishing them, not making them go away, but fulfilling them. Completing them, bringing to their proper end. And some of what Jesus does when we read the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew 5, is Jesus helps us interpret Scripture more faithfully. He says things like, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Jesus, as God, is helping us interpret Scripture more faithfully. And that happened when Jesus walked on this earth, when he taught, when he explained, when he opened the Scriptures. Even on the road to Emmaus, the disciples said, when he opened the Scriptures to us, were our hearts not burning? Because when God comes alive in God's Word, it is an encounter with a living person that changes us. But then when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to continue to be at work within us, to continue to inspire us, as we talked about last week with the writing of Scripture, and to inspire the early church, that they made decisions on what went into the New Testament and what didn't. We know the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There were other ones written that the church gathered together and seeking to be obedient to the Holy Spirit said, no, the Gospel of Thomas does not count. It does not have the same authority as these ones that we hold to be trustworthy and true. There are other letters being written in the early church, but we have the 27 books of the New Testament because the early church gathered together and said, this is what we feel. The Holy Spirit has led us to say, this is the word of God. There was other things that didn't make it in. We trust a faithful following of God's Holy Spirit and that Jesus came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it for us, to be our righteousness, as Romans tells us. That we practice these commands, but what commands are they? 
Jesus was cornered by that question. And he told people to follow the commands of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Practice these commands. Learn to interpret scripture the way Jesus modeled it for us. That that's how we fulfill the law. That we're not competing with the Pharisees to follow the rules better, but that we are seeking a living encounter with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the written word, that we might know the incarnate word who is Jesus Christ. There's three things that I want to throw on the slide today that you'll see again. Authentic community, radical obedience, and reflective living. It's a picture of discipleship and and how do we gather together as individuals and as, as God's people here at North Holland to read scripture well and to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit. That we should have a life that includes reflective living, that includes solitude, scripture reading, prayer. It also includes, includes moments of reflecting on our actions. That's why we do confession and assurance week after week. It is a moment to model a reflective lifestyle as God's people, to ask God to speak to us and to say, God, we're listening for you. To seek radical obedience, that if you encounter a living person and they change you, they will change you to be more obedient. That, that we seek radical obedience, not just more and more cadaver knowledge, though I enjoy all of that learning, but that, that beyond the cadaver knowledge of Scripture is this call by the Holy Spirit through Scripture to make us more obedient servants and disciples of Jesus Christ. That we follow him, that, that there's not a prototype in the Bible for how we run our after-school program, but it was something that we thought was worth doing out of obedience to the gift that God gave us in the space that we have. And that we do this individually, that we listen for God, that we seek to obey God, but we also do it in authentic community. We do that as the church. That when you feel led or called in a certain direction, Scripture in Thessalonians tells us to test words of prophecy against the body that this is the authentic community in which we share and make sure that we are hearing God's voice correctly through God's word, that it is in the local church that we live out this obedience and that we seek to be accountable to God through one another. Our community matters because we're seeking the same thing, to interpret faithfully and to live out God's call for our lives with all of the integrity and peace that we can muster. And we do this to learn a lot about the rules, but the end game is not just to follow the law, but to come to a living encounter with the one who fulfilled the law for us. And this is lived out in community. Communities that seek to love people well. And I'm, as you might guess, just a little bit quick to tears these days because people like you at North Holland live out this authentic community in a way that changes my heart, that we receive your love, that your radical obedience to to take care of those who are grieving matters. And that God is at work in that. No one told you how to do that, but you figured it out. 
to apologize. I'm to the point right now where, like, I can't even watch Cars 3 without tearing up. <laughs> when Lightning McQueen says to Cruz Ramirez, because you're a racer, I'm like, boo. <laughs> What's wrong, Daddy? Nothing, Ada. Keep watching the movie. But we do this work together. We do this work to seek the Holy Spirit. That we do interpret scripture and we seek to do so faithfully and to hold one another accountable to a faithful interpretation that leads to a radical obedience. That we do this one day at a time through reflective living on on what we know and on what we do as our actions dictate. And as we said at the very beginning of this series, good doctrine comes from Scripture and helps us to interpret Scripture faithfully. It was the bicycle wheel like nine weeks ago. And that's why the last thing that I just want us to hold on to is the gift of the Apostles' Creed. It's one of those things that maybe doesn't get a lot of uh, hype time because it's just this old saying, right? And it's not in the Bible, and yet we use it to understand what the main points of our faith are. And I have a particular beef when the Apostles' Creed and the Confessions are kind of jettisoned, like those don't matter as much. Because if you push someone on what they believe, if they are a faithful Christian and you push someone on what they believe, they will essentially give you the points of the Apostles' Creed. It's from the Bible, it's the, it's the summation of the story and the high points of what we believe. And before Christians were literate, before they could read the Bible, the Apostles' Creed was the phrase that they used to understand orthodoxy of what they held together as a community, as God's church. Think about how it asks if you ask someone, well, I don't use the Apostles' Creed, I just believe the Bible. Okay, it takes 72 hours to read out loud, go. So what are the highlights? Well, I mean... Where do we come from? Well, I believe in God the Father. Who? Well, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Oh, so you believe in a creator. Well, no, I also believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord. Really? Is he here? Well, yeah, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he was born of the Virgin Mary. Oh, wow, what happened next? Well, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. Your God died? What happened next? He descended to the dead. Did he stay dead? On the, no, on the third day, he rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven. What's he do there? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's the story. What else do you believe? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, both present and those who have gone before us the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, we have a gift in the Bible, and we have a gift of 2,000 years worth of people helping us interpret it well. Don't think that one of us by ourselves will somehow outsmart 2,000 years of Christian understanding of the Bible. It's in the creed. It helps us read our scriptures well and faithfully so that we can live out not a half-truth of proof-texting, but the whole truth of God's call on our lives. So have the community, have the reflective lifestyle, seek the obedience of God, and listen for God's voice in all that we do, 
so that we can confess, even through the words of a creed, what it is that we believe and why that matters. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, you gave us pictures of who you are in how you interacted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, in how you rose up judges and prophets to bring people back to you when they had lost their way, and that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to assume our flesh and blood, to be born, to live among us, to teach us, to help us know who you are better, but then to see your heart and your love for us displayed on the cross when you died for our sins and when you rose again for our salvation. God, you call us to follow you and you gave us the gift of your word and you gave us the gift of your Holy Spirit that it was inspired by your spirit and that we read it still today when your Holy Spirit moves among us. So as we read your word, Lord, every single time we do, send your Holy Spirit to us that we may interpret it faithfully and that as we do that, that it may be brought not only to ourselves as if this was only for our own benefit, but to the community of believers, to your church. Move among us that your word, which you described as living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword in Hebrews chapter 4, that it may do exactly what you said it would do, that it may judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. May your word live among us, and may we live it out faithfully. So guide us by your Holy Spirit. Inspire us alongside of one another as neighbors in this pilgrim's journey of faith to be with one another, that, that what we say and think and do may glorify and honor you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.